Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? On the podcast today, we have Cynthia Samanian. She is an entrepreneur and she has a really interesting life story from hustling and working in startups to building her own startup in her passion of um, hosting dinner parties. And she turned into an experiential marketing agency to help brands just deliver awesome events to people. So it's just quite a fun tale of um, hearing someone's story and then learning lots about how to host great dinner parties and generally be an awesome person. So yeah, I really like Cynthia and I'm sure you will too. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. So my name is Cynthia. I'm the founder and CEO of Hidden Rhythm. We are an experiential marketing agency for brands and food and wellness. So essentially any brand you see on the shelves at Whole Foods is a brand we maybe have worked with in the past or would like to work with in the future. That's how I like to frame up who we we, uh, support. But my path to experiential marketing is definitely anything but straightforward and direct. I actually think of it as starting uh, in my childhood. So my whole obsession with experiences and hospitality, I actually attribute back to growing up in a Persian home where we basically celebrated everything over food. I'm not sure if the listeners here have had Persian food, but it is abundant and there are always platters of rice and stews and essentially, uh, you know, everyone is well fed after second or even third servings. So growing up, I was always helping my parents set the table, my mom specifically. And this idea of setting the table and creating a really warm, welcoming atmosphere has just continued as a through line in my career. So it's not something I realized until not too long ago, but as I look at kind of my career path and trajectory and how I ended up at my agency today, a lot of it ties back to those moments. So fast forward, you know, once I joined, uh, once I graduated college, I worked in finance for a while, dipped my toes in that, I got my MBA, then I worked at a tech startup and it was there that I learned how to build and design products uh, specifically for uh, mobile applications, mobile software. Well, I learned a lot in that job. I always had this lingering passion for food and hospitality and really connecting people at the dining table. So I was able to actually leave the tech job after five years of working in product management and start a media company in food. Now that company was totally focused on bringing people together through recipes for potlucks, tips on how to host your friends. It was really focused on entertaining. And after running that for about two years, I'd say alongside that, I was using pop-ups to help promote the site. So I was hosting events to help build traffic for the digital site. And at the time I was essentially doing experiential marketing, but I didn't really know that's what it was even called. Cool. Yeah, yeah, so I did that for a while to help promote the site. And I started to become really familiar with brands and what they were looking for as I pitched them to sponsor my events. So I was doing these events on behalf of my own brand, but then started to think about other food brands who would be interested in building communities by, you know, teaming up with my company. And it was then that I realized that I actually enjoyed creating events more than creating content online, whether it was recipes, tutorials, that sort of thing. And that's when I made the pivot to Hidden Rhythm, which is like I said before, an experiential agency. So we're doing everything we can to help brands build experiences for their communities offline. Cool. That's uh, yeah, like sensible life story of trying different things and working out what actually you're interested in what works. So yeah, definitely, yeah. It's kind of funny unpacking your life, sort of going back because when you kind of tell your story, you go, oh yeah, that's kind of why I did this ultimately. And, yeah, it's nice. Exactly. And it's when I think about it, there's no way I could have planned for what you did. Where, yeah, plan or even just fast forward to where mm-hmm. I am now. It was really that journey of multiple decisions that 
you know, one after the other led me to where I am now. I mean, I've never been your traditional event person. I've never been one who loved to throw parties. I just basically loved the experience of getting people together and, and sharing a meal together. And that's led me to what I do now. But it's funny because I certainly didn't have that traditional event planning or marketing background. Yeah, it's funny how you kind of end up doing things that you wouldn't say you're like, would naturally be doing in the same way. Like I'm an, I would say I'm an introvert, but I've kind of adopted extroverted qualities I actually quite enjoy having, but just through, I don't know, by kind of developing as you go older and doing different things. Okay. So starting at the start, I guess, uh, how as a Persian, so you were brought up in America, but in a Persian household? That's right. Yeah. I was actually born in North Dakota, which for those listeners in the U.S., you probably don't know anyone, maybe one person uh, from that state. But my parents immigrated from Iran during the revolution uh, in 79, and they had me several years later in the U.S. So how did they go about actually emigrating from Iran? So did they like plan it in advance? Did they kind of just get on a boat? How, like, <laughs> Well, no, not, not many boats came over from there, but they did. Uh, they were able to uh, leave on a student visa, which was, which was helpful. So uh, my, my dad came over to the US and my mom followed soon after with my sister, who was uh, eight years older than me. So she was born in Iran. And yep, they were able to build a new life in the US. And it's because of really everything that they gave up and sacrificed that's enabled me to mm. essentially build this company. I mean, if I think a lot about risk and my mindset on risk, oftentimes people talk about how starting a company is one of the riskiest things you can do. And I just tend to think quite the opposite, like yeah. not living your passion and not fulfilling your potential is the risk. And, you know, having gone a, a really solid business school and having those degrees behind me, which, you know, for me, that's, I can always fall back on that, right? If I needed to get a job at a traditional company doing a traditional job, that's always there. And so for me, when I, I think my parents' story has definitely impacted the way I think about taking risks and almost, like I said, it's the reverse. It's the risk of not doing something is greater than, you know, the risk of doing it. Yeah, definitely. It's so true as in, we really like wrap ourselves up in stories of what's important right now and like don't do things because we kind of worry about losing something that actually is really kind of irrelevant and things like your time is so much more important and losing the opportunity to do the thing that is your passion is much more important than losing like your mortgage or something which you probably won't lose anyway exactly if you start a business and you can kind of yeah, operate not to fail. And yeah, I was talking to a friend about something and he was saying, oh, I could never do this. Or like, you couldn't go move somewhere else for some reason. And I was like, well, like, what about people that sort of just, I literally just on a podcast with someone who'd had his house like bombed and then like had to flee from Iraq or something. And I'm like, well, I mean, if your house blew up and like your country was going to kill you and you had to leave, you'd leave. So obviously you could actually leave if you wanted to. So it's really, you're just telling yourself a story. And it's like, well, I guess I am. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of funny when you actually think about it a bit more. Right, right. We can definitely get in our own way. And yeah, yeah. I think having the example of my parents and I know a lot of others who you start businesses and, and kind of have that story in their own head that they refer to whenever they feel like, their life is so hard. It's like, well, wait a minute. My parents came here with one suitcase and no English with a child. Like, I think I can figure out my Facebook ad funnel, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I think it'll be okay. It's definitely like a very middle-class problem to be dealing with. Exactly. So, um, yeah, then you went to college. I didn't quite catch what you did in college. I studied finance. I was originally pre-med, wanted to be a doctor, uh, then quickly realized that was not going to work. I hated hospitals. I had worked in a biomedical engineering lab. I hated that. Uh, essentially, I recognized that any position I'd be in where I would be working in medicine was not a place that I'd enjoy. So wow. it took some time. And it's funny how you have to, well, I mean, if you think about it in the US at least, 
kids are deciding what they want to be when they're 16 years old, right? Yeah, and ridiculous. it's ridiculous to go into college with a major already decided. So I quickly left pre-med. Uh, I had to take an econ class just to fulfill my prerequisites. And my mind was blown. I was like, wow, the world makes sense now. Uh, it was a class that was not only practical, but just really helped me connect the dots and what was happening uh, in politics and business, everything that I was seeing on the news. So I just was fascinated by that and switched majors pretty quickly and studied finance and uh, graduated with a degree in finance. Then I went to work for GE Capital, so General Electric Capital. It back then was a really profitable, thriving business. Uh, since then, it sold off into different uh, different pieces that have then been bought by other companies. But back in, this is 2006, it was a really incredible time to be working in corporate finance. I learned a lot. I traveled the world. That brought me to Paris, Ireland, all over, and uh, learned a lot about how a 300,000-person company runs. Got to see got to see a lot around leadership and as well as kind of the nitty gritty of how finance is run at, you know, one of the world's largest companies. Mm, cool. Yeah. It's really good to get a bit of experience in sort of really big companies. It's something I kind of feel I'm missing out on a bit of, I think you can, yeah, you just become a bit more aware of what like lots of people are doing. Cause obviously lots of people work in really big companies <laughs> just statistics. Yeah. and when you have no clue about that, it's a bit, hard to really understand. Yeah, and I exactly. And I think out of college having that be my first job, it was it was incredible because I was part of a leadership training program. So the company had invested a ton in in our potential. And of course they they wanted us all to stay and become future CFOs and managers of the company. But uh I'd say those few years were really monumental and building my like professional acumen and presence. Uh, and uh, since then, I mean, I've worked in companies that, you know, were 15 people to my company now, that's just two of us, right? So I've kind of seen uh, the range of company sizes, but, uh, you know, sometimes you come into these startups and you have people who are just right off the bat in this 15 person company and they've never worked anywhere else. And Having a perspective of working in a large company, I think, is really, really beneficial and sometimes underrated in this very startup tech heavy uh, world we live in now, at least in San Francisco, where, where I live. Definitely. Yeah. And I don't miss it, to be clear. I, I certainly think it was a great place to grind my teeth and mm. learn. But ever since uh, moving towards smaller companies, I, I love how things get done more quickly, how there are fewer hurdles in terms of, you know, corporate approvals and bureaucracy. And it's, it's literally just how fast can you go? Yeah, yeah. There's no better feeling than that. And, and that's why I started my company. That's one of the reasons why. And that's why I'm excited to build it because that flexibility and freedom is priceless. Um, I'm kind of interested by the fact that you didn't like medicine because I really did want to be a doctor, but I did some, vol not volunteering, you know, I did work experience in finance and I wanted to shoot myself. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I super want to be a doctor. This is so fascinating. But then, like you said, when you're sort of 16, I was like, if I choose to be a doctor, I kind of have to do that for the rest of my life. If I do something else, I can kind of vaguely change jobs and that would be fine. And so I didn't go for it. But then all my friends that studied medicine are doing really fun stuff now. And I'm like, kind of slightly jealous um so yeah it's a bit odd that you didn't like it so much what, what kind of things were you imagining yourself doing that you wouldn't like well I mean to be perfectly honest I reached a point where I just wasn't enjoying the coursework and I wasn't getting the grades that I wanted right so my personality is that like if I do something I want to be really really good at it and I want to do something that's original and different, and I want to be the best I possibly can. So I was, you know, in my third year of coursework, and I was miserable. I hated organic chemistry. I was volunteering at the hospital. I, like I said, was working at a lab over the summer, and I was really forcing myself to love it. And I was surrounded by students and friends of mine who truly loved it, right? And I think that was one of the first lessons, if I think back about 
you know, what have I learned over the years? It's like, don't try and be something you're not, right? Don't try and force fit something. And I loved science in high school because I was good at it, right? And that's also what happened in finance. I was really good at my job, but I didn't love it. And I think for the early part of my career, I dreamt of having an opportunity to work in a field that not only I was good at, but I also loved. So I think, and I think those two things can go hand in hand, right? Like if you love a discipline so much, you will work extra hard to be good at it. You will spend your spare time reading about it. And I just never found that fit, whether it was in medicine or even in finance. Uh, and, you know, honestly, finance was like a, a Hail Mary in college, right? Like I needed to pick a major and I needed to graduate. So I figured, okay, with a finance degree, I can get a job the minute I graduate college. And that worked out really well for me. But I certainly did not know what my passion was in college. And I think it's, like I said earlier, really, uh, really unfortunate that there's all this pressure to figure all of this out at such a young age. And, you know, looking back, maybe I should have taken a gap year. I don't know. But I also think it's okay to evolve in your career. And, and some of the coolest business ideas and companies are formed out of a combination of experiences, right? Like I'm approaching food from an outsider's point of view or event marketing experiential from an outsider's point of view. And had I gone the traditional route of say, you know, majoring in business, going to work at a PR agency, then doing PR in-house at a brand and then starting Hidden Rhythm today, it would look very different just because my approach would be much more traditional versus kind of this outside looking in point of view. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. I'm really glad I asked this question, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, I've been doing studying a like, how to learn course, and it's all about having sort of connections between different things. And so when you go and get experiences from one area, that's what makes you a real innovator in a different area. If you then go and do something different, because then you bring something and you have ideas that no one else is actually having in that field. Exactly. And then your point about like, just because you're kind of good at something, like you want to kind of be an innovator and you could be okay at medicine but then there's like a bunch of other people that are all quite good or really good and like why do you want to be doing the same thing it's so much nicer to be unique and doing something that really speaks to your passions that was really nice thanks how did you get into the product management side of things so that was the tech company just after graduating or yeah so i went to so i worked in finance i worked at ge for about four years and then i went and got my mba uh at that time i was very focused on going all in on this entrepreneurship path, whatever that meant. I wasn't ready to start a company because frankly, I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to build. And this is back in 2010. So Facebook had been around for a while. It was the whole web 2.0 time. I'm definitely dating myself here, but uh, you know, everyone was talking about Foursquare. Twitter was still early. Uh, it was a really magical time in, in kind of that consumer tech space. And I had gone to business school with the goal of having time to focus and explore business ideas. And, and I should say focus on actually writing a business plan and, and following through with it after graduation. I'd worked on a plan. Uh, meanwhile, I was interning at a tech startup in San Francisco that at the time was really, really attractive, uh, 18 person company had just received a good chunk of funding and they were basically building an app to help connect people on a more private social network. So at the time, Facebook was kind of the place where you were now connected to your mom, your kindergarten teacher and your best friend. Uh, and because of that, you, you know, people were sharing less and less of their real life on Facebook. So this network, it was called path P A T H, um, had a goal of connecting you with your closest friends and family so that you'd actually feel more comfortable sharing real content. So, you know, parents could share baby photos and not be weirded out about who's seeing it on the other end. It was a really innovative company at the time, started by uh, a former early Facebook employee. And I went in as a general business intern. I mean, at the time it was all designers and engineers, so I had no business being there. But I really pushed my way in after like a four to five month recruiting effort on my end. Uh, flew to San Francisco from Boston several times, knocked on their door, stalked the company at South by Southwest, kind of did whatever it could take uh, to get in. And so I did get in and spent 
the next five years at that company. I started in business, uh, was able to transition into product management, which was a huge leap and one that I am really, really uh, grateful to have had that opportunity because it, it helped me go from kind of the business side of analyzing results and thinking through strategy to the other side of being really uh, in the weeds of designing and creating a product that would change the company's trajectory. So I got to, to work on that in a product management capacity for several years, and then we sold to another company. So I had an opportunity to then really think about what I wanted to do and revisit that earlier thought I had shared about connecting my passion with my strengths. And that led me to building out a food media company that was called Confetti Kitchen. And that was the next chapter. Let's unpack this chapter first. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting because I sort of have a similar story of I hustled really hard to get into a startup called Crowd Emotion, where I ended up being their product manager when they were like analyzing human emotions. And that was like a super cool tech startup and kind of just went in and kind of worked for free for a month and managed to like sell enough stuff to be able to give myself a wage and like this tiny company and was like, right, so I'm staying. And uh, yeah, it's really, really fun. But it was such a good experience to learn like to do some product managing in tech when you kind of want to do something technical as your own business to actually sort of see how it works and something that's like a bit further ahead than you. So yeah, I'd kind of like to know a bit more about how you hustled to get in because you said you did lots of hustling in terms of videos and stuff. What, what did that entail? I did. Well, so I had identified probably four to five companies that I wanted to work for for my internship. So in business school, it's a two-year program and you have a summer in between the first and second year during which you can spend those three months interning, traveling, doing whatever you want to do. I was very serious about really getting into this startup ecosystem, specifically in San Francisco. So I used that summer internship to really get into a, a company that I felt had great potential. A lot of people I could learn from really go outside my comfort zone. So at the time, yeah, there were about four companies. Uh, Dropbox was one, uh, Foursquare. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to think back at these companies now. Uh, but for Path in particular, I was really excited to work with them because they had this vision of building a product that would connect people more intimately online. And I think we can say that about the world today digitally. And But even back then, it was true that People, despite being connected digitally, were living lives that made them feel even more alone than before, mm. right? And so this idea of being digitally connected was very different than actually being socially connected. And as humans, that's that's the core emotion that we need, right, is to actually have that connectedness. And that, once again, kind of ties back to the work I do today. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy how it comes yeah. full circle. I mean, it's it's really it's pretty incredible when you connect the dots after the fact, but, uh, but yeah, so I was really excited to work with them. Mobile back in 2010 was obviously where everything was going. Um, you know, Facebook's mobile app wasn't even a thing or it wasn't even <laughs> an actual product. I mean, just looking like 2010 was so different compared to where we are today. So at the time, everyone was talking about mobile first. And this company was mobile first and they were creating and designing products for mobile. And for me, I felt like no matter what I would do after that company, having experience designing and developing products for mobile, or at least managing a team who were experts at it would be incredibly valuable no matter what I did after. I just felt like it was a technology, a platform that I needed to understand. So I, to get into Path, just to answer your story, I uh, had a warm intro from a friend who introduced me to their head of business development, uh, which kind of at the time, I mean, they really only had one business person and, and this person was in that role. I flew out to San Francisco, missed some classes in business school. Uh, took, he took my meeting, which was great. Basically, long story short, had said, that's cool, you're into this company definitely use our app, but we don't really need any MBAs around. Uh, and I was like, okay, great. You know, <laughs> thanks, thanks, but uh, I'm going to keep knocking on your door. And he had left me a little hint that they would be at South by Southwest hosting a really great party and that if I was there, I should plan on going. 
And so I left that meeting knowing that I needed to book my ticket to South by Southwest and I needed to make sure I stayed connected and so I could get into the party. So that was about three months later. I went to South by Southwest. I led a group actually of classmates, which was really fun. We went down to Austin and uh, texted him, said, hey, I'm here. I'm at the door of your party. (laughs) What? Yeah. So he let me in and we started talking and I got to learn more about the fact that they were now open to interns and they were actually talking to someone from Stanford. And of course that got my competitive juices flowing, thinking like, are you kidding me? Like they're going to take someone after I basically convinced him that they needed an intern. So at that point I was full steam ahead, really pushing to get in. So I uh, started asking him questions about the business, started to ask him questions about challenges that they had, their monetization strategy in particular. And he uh, gave me some answers, gave me some tidbits, but you know, we're at this super crowded party at South by Southwest and there's only so much actual conversation you can have uh, with people all over, but I, I ran with it and I went back to Boston and I worked on a model. So I used my modeling skills from my GE finance days and built out a rather simple model, but it was, I think more than what they had at the time. And it was purely, you know, my, my, me taking a stab at their monetization based off of their user growth. And I had used articles I had read online about the company to extrapolate data points. And then I flew back to San Francisco and showed him that. And I said, here's what I can do for you. Now, of course, it doesn't matter if the numbers are wrong or right, but I was able to logically come up with a model that, like I said, they probably didn't have. And I was able to show my value. So that's really what got me in Uh, a week later. They made an offer to have me be their intern. I spent the summer there. I continued to work during the second year of business school. And then I joined them after graduating and was there, like I said, for about four more years. So for me, it was about showing the value upfront and making it easy for them to see that value. Just having them think like, what could she do for us, right? Yeah, yeah, putting on their plates and you fully deserve that job. By the time you got it, it's sort of like no questions about who they're gonna hire kind of thing. And yeah. Big, big lesson for anyone trying to get into a company as in anyone can impress the socks off someone they're about to be interviewed by if they if they want to like you don't just have to play by the rules of like filling in the few boxes that they give you to talk about yourself you can go and make an entire project and stuff and show up as like super into it and yeah you killed it nice (laughs) thanks but focus was a key part of it right like I've talked to people before who have wanted to to do something similar in terms of breaking through to a company where there's no job posting, right? Or they don't have a, an official program. And I tell them like, you need to pick two to three companies. Like you can't do this really high touch involved approach with 20 companies. It's impossible, right? So there's a trade-off there, but if you do it right, then, you know, hopefully it pays off. And it does help if you have like one person to talk to that actually knows you somehow. Definitely. But that's kind of just, just a question of showing up like you did and meeting someone. But yeah, that's a really cool story. Thanks. Uh, so did you have any other friends then come and do the same thing or like try and get into the business after you? Or did you kind of leave all of your friends and join me? <laughs> um, a lot of, no, actually, I would say that year we had the highest percentage of students in our class go to San Francisco. So Zynga, I should say, was also a very, very big employer. And Zynga would actually hire MBAs to be product managers right off the bat. So uh, there were a lot of companies out there who were hiring more MBAs, but the smaller startups, it was still a challenge. And so I had a few friends who were able to break through to some companies, but uh, for the most part, a lot of people went to larger tech companies or uh, had dabbled in tech and then went back to consulting or more traditional traditional jobs just because the risk levels are just different, right? and if you're leaving business school with all these loans and you have all these financial commitments, a traditional consulting job can be pretty attractive for that, for someone who's looking to pay those off as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a sort of thing that you kind of go for, where maybe isn't the best long-term strategy, but solving your current problem and really attractive. It's, it's kind of a pity, it's quite nice at the moment and I'm kind of having a bit of a year off and, doing any kind of normal work and, and <laughs> just doing things that kind of interest me. And um, yeah, it's good to be able to 
not be stuck in just having to earn money. With your experiential events then, so they are like just sponsored by a company and then people get to know the company at the event? That's right. So when I had first started out building this model within the media company, it would be our event sponsored by Simply Organic, a spice company here in the US, for example. And so we would host a dinner with uh, bloggers, media, quote, influencers, and we would create a really intimate dining experience where people would get to experience the products, not just by you know having spices on the tacos that we were serving, but also through some like hands-on things, like how to use spices in cocktails. So we'd have an interactive cocktail mixing station, or we'd have a station set up where there would be 50 different types of spices. And we had cards that would show how to blend your own spices. So if you wanted to make a Greek island spice blend, you would combine oregano, garlic, et cetera. So it's very interactive and hands-on. That was the premise of our events from the beginning. But once we shifted from Confetti Kitchen to Hidden Rhythm, what really happened there is that we ditched the content side. We were no longer trying to be this publisher for entertaining and hosting content. We now are behind the scenes and we're empowering brands to create experiences for their most loyal tribe, whether it's customers, influencers, media, et cetera. So today what we do is uh, brands hire us to design and produce events from start to finish. And it could be anywhere in the US. Most of our work is done in California between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And so we've worked with Bob's Red Mill, Bear Snacks, Topo Chico, uh, many brands who are looking to build brand awareness around their company and new products that they're coming out with. I hadn't really realized, but it's really like something I'd been doing. I was working with a friend, we um, doing a company called Hack League, where it was more about hackathons but we'd work with companies like Microsoft or Google or, or like smaller businesses and like any like small new thing that they're bringing out, we'd kind of run a hackathon around it to get people involved. And it was just a really fun way of like getting people to learn something and to get involved with these companies. And then the companies would benefit from people knowing about what was going on. And, and yeah, I guess it was like experiential marketing and <laughs> never realized it. It was more we were just thinking about it from the hackathon side and found a way to make money doing it. It's funny because a lot of people don't know they're doing experiential while they're doing it. Like my example of dinners, your example of that. But then on the flip side, a lot of people think they're doing experiential when they're really not. So uh, there's a lot of miseducation out there and, and misinformation around what exper experiential excuse me, actually is. And that's one of my goals too. And what we're doing is we offer the full service design and production. So a company can write us a check, send us product, and we will create an event that looks like they designed it. That's fantastic and really tells their brand story. But on the other end, we are doing a lot on the content. And so I teach workshops here at General Assembly, but I also uh, create a lot of online content to empower brand marketers to create experiences for their brand that don't require me to be involved, right? Like most people think that experiential has to be expensive. And that's just because the agency world, anytime you hear agency, you see dollar signs, right? And there's so many experiential agencies out there who make really good money doing what they do. But for me, I really want to democratize this access to experiential and actually give the tools to people at brands who actually need it the most because they don't have the big budgets to go hire, you know, these really sexy agencies to do these huge Coachella activations, for example. Interesting. So like when you say make it do it more cheaper, so what's sort of, let's say I was running um, a business for like 40 employees or something and I was stocked in like uh, across the UK and I wanted to put on an event in London. Do you know, kind of have an idea of how much you would charge me for that? Oh, well, I, that would be expensive because I'm in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but okay, I mean, so everything say, is, it's all I was custom. in the US. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it totally, I mean, it depends, right? So there are, like, we do everything from a 15-person influencer dinner, like a very high-touch interactive dinner, kind of like what I alluded to before, yeah. to a four-day public pop-up in LA that's like huge, like huge scale. So 
every, it's all custom and it totally depends. But I will say that, you know, I talk to a lot of brands, especially in the food space who have such a great story. You know, they're really like founder driven, mission driven. They have a fantastic product and they just need to get the word out and they need to build brand awareness. And the unfortunate part of kind of how this world works is that you have to pay to play. And so they are the brands who I think need experiential the most, but they can't even think about putting money there because of all the other priorities they have. So what I want to do is be able to empower them to do like much light, like lighter weight activations on their own that don't require me to come in with my team. And oftentimes it's something as simple as partnering with a yoga studio next door and doing a really great event together. And it isn't about how much money you throw at it, but more what you're doing with people's time, right? People are spending three hours of their evening with you and your brand. There are very specific things you can do, or even just psychological principles that will increase the retention of the information you share with them and later their ability to recall your brand and what you do. So that cycle, like the psychology behind experiences is what I'm really passionate about. And I think that can be shared with brands in a way that's Mm. expensive and actually helps everyone create better events because ultimately what it's, it's time wasted otherwise. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's quite a few events that people make a mess of that could be great. And then there's (laughs) quite a lot of people that never have the chance to make events. He really should be. And yeah, yeah, the whole psychological side of things is such a big impact. And um, yeah, let's hear a bit more about what you, what your biggest tips are in terms of for someone who is smaller, like what are the kind of things they should be focusing on to like increase the amount of brand recall and brand love and everything. Absolutely. Well, and this is mainly for B2, uh, B2C companies. So, and we actually have a guide on our site. Um, I can give you the link after Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's a guide that has 10 ways to increase your events ROI. And we're not talking like a crazy mathematical equation here. Ultimately ROI is just the return on investment and every brand and CMO in particular cares about getting more for their dollar. And there are ways to create events that don't have to cost more, but will have a bigger impact. And so we have those 10 tips, but ultimately the things that you want to do in an event are engage people, connect people, teach people. All right. So if you hit one of those three things, then you're going to help make your event that much more memorable for people. So we always involve a level of engagement in our events. And and by that, we actually mean getting people to roll their sleeves up and do something, make something, create something. People love leaving some, you know, an event with something that they've made, something tangible. Mm. And it, it can be hard to do if your brand, for example, is like a, an accounting software. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there are ways to get creative, right? And working in food and wellness, we have a lot of really great opportunities to, to do that. But that being said, I've seen incredible brands in the business services space be able to figure it out. So that's not an excuse. If you work at a, at a brand that you don't feel is you know sexy to, to clients or consumers, at the end of the day, you can come up with something. But engagement is a huge part of it. People are more likely to share when they have something that they can tell their friends about. Um, so that's just one of the tips. Um, there's also really great value in thinking of uh, you know partners, right? So if you are a smaller brand, you don't have to go at it alone find another brand who you can partner with that makes sense, right? You have the same target market, uh, you you know, you have the same ideal customer, you have the same values. There's no reason why you should feel like you have to do it on your own. I'd say more than two brands, things can kind of get muddled uh, and your presence becomes more diluted, but partnering with one other brand can cut your costs in half, right? And you're not necessarily giving up anything. And if anything, you're actually building more opportunities for cross promotion and spreading the word about your brand by, you know, swapping email lists or promoting the event on each other's social pages, for example. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, really useful tips. Um, thanks. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of, like you just alluded to at the end, like actually getting people like, um, 
sharing it and stuff. How do you get people to come to these events? Yeah, that's that's always a tricky thing, but it, it really depends on your audience and their motivations, right? So once again, thinking about psychology, I mean, they're trading their time for something. So you need to give them a reason why giving up three hours of their time, for example, is compelling. Uh, it rarely is financial. It's rarely about swag, right? There's there's some other motivations there that you need to tap into. Most of our events that we do actually are for quote, influencers, content creators, basically people with large followings who create content that is on brand and aligned with the brands that we work with. So for example, if we work with Bob's Red Mill, you know, they create, uh, they produce uh, really great flowers, everything from gluten-free flour, paleo flour, almond flour, et cetera. Their, their market is the home baker, right? They're going after the person at home who wants to bake their own cakes versus buy them in the store. They care a lot about the, the ingredients they feed their families. So for their event, we targeted home bakers who had large followings. So influencers were important because you basically get more bang for your buck. If you have 20 people in the room, but those 20 people each have a megaphone to 50,000 people, now your message is amplified, right? And that's why working with influencers is definitely one of our recommendations when it comes to improving your events ROI, because like I said, they, they are a megaphone. Now there's, we could do a whole episode on influencers and influencer marketing. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good in that world, but then there's of course some bad seeds yes. that have made it a murky space that a lot of brands are scared of. But yeah. we, what we, we were talking about advertising earlier, it's, it's funny yeah. one. but carry on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's, it, it is. And it's, I always kind of have to tiptoe around this topic because I know people are quick to get after influencers, but at the end of the day, influencer marketing, when done well, works. And we have seen that with events, it can really help amplify the impact. So when we do events, we work and we work with influencers. For them, it's not about paying them to attend the event or even paying them to post. We actually never pay an influencer to post content from a brand event. But what we do is we give them a reason to come and a reason to post. So maybe they're getting a sneak preview of a product line before it's released to everyone. Or maybe the motivation for them to come is to hang out with their friends because oftentimes these bloggers and content creators all know each other. So if I'm giving them a great evening of baking awesome cakes and cookies and they get to spend time together, then that might be the motivation, right? Um, so it comes down to understanding who your target attendee is and what drives them. It's different for every group, press, influencers, the general public, they all have their own motivations. But tapping into that before you just start sending invites is mm -hmm. the most important thing. Otherwise, you're just trying to play the numbers game and you know, hope that you can, it's kind of like spray and pray, right? You hope that, all right, if you invite you know, 100 people, then hopefully half will show up. Well, you got to think more about why those people would even want to come in the first place. Yeah, that's really useful. Um, thanks. Uh, so I would kind of like maybe slightly more advice of how to get hold of influencers and make them come because as in you said, yeah. there's, there's possibly one of the most important things. So how would I like sell it to an influencer that it's worth their time to come? Cause obviously they have the power to really make an event right. have a huge ROI. So what's in it for them like, that I can sell to them? Kind of thing. Yeah. Great question. So most of the time when we work with brands who want to have an influencer event, they have an influencer strategy. Meaning if you haven't talked to a single influencer, if you don't have an active Instagram, if you haven't prioritized marketing in that bucket, then, and you came to me and said, we want to do an influencer event, I would be very, very hesitant to do it because you, it's about building a relationship and events ultimately are about connecting people and building a relationship. And it's one touch point in a series of many that you need to actually build brand loyalty. Brand loyalty eventually leads to sales. So what I recommend is that brands invest the time in an influencer strategy. And it doesn't have to mean hiring someone. You can dedicate a portion of your time or your digital marketing manager's time into 
identifying influencers who are a good fit for your brand and getting to know them. Go out to coffee with them, ask them what they're working on, understand what their skills are. Maybe they could help you with your brand's photography. Maybe they're a great recipe developer. You know, whatever it is that they can offer, you want to build a relationship that's just this two-way communication and this partnership. Then come back to me in six months and tell me you want to have an event to bring them together. And then we'll talk, right? So even after the event, one of the biggest mistakes we see brands make is that they don't follow through or they don't follow up. And follow-up is a huge part of event strategy. Events are not just those three hours that you have them, but it's the lead up, it's the event during that time period, and it's also after. So if you're working with influencers already, great. We'll have an event that really gets them engaged, gets them knowing about your product. We often have the CEO of the brands present, and that's huge because influencers feel like they're getting a sneak peek into the company, that they're really part of that family within the brand. And then afterwards, follow up with them, see what they're working on. Are there ways to continue the partnership? Uh, so that's when I've seen influencers at events really work well, is that it's not just this one-off random, hey, come to our event, take pictures and share it. Because that's really, like, that's very five years ago, right? Like, we've, we've evolved past that. Now it's about, okay, you're an extension of our brand and we need to, like, bring you into our community and this is how we're doing it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks so much. Cool. Then, um, yeah, any other major lessons you've had around this? How, well, I guess the other big thing is how do you get clients in the first yeah. place with what you're doing? So that's like, how would I approach finding a big client and be like, oh, well, I can do things yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely been a learning and something I continue to to figure out. I mean, we're in our second year of business right now as Hidden Rhythm. So we still have a ways to go, but I will say what's been exciting is that we've seen repeat business uh, over last year. So we've, we are not on a retainer uh, like as a traditional PR agency would be. We work with our clients on a project by project basis. So when we get brands who come back to us for their second, third, fourth event, that's always really exciting. And that, you know, having repeat business is very valuable, as I'm sure you know, as a, as a business owner. Um, but most of our new clients, if I think about it, they all come from word of mouth or uh, conferences. So we, uh, I speak quite a bit in the food, uh, food and wellness uh, forums. So there's a really large, there are actually two very large organic and natural food conferences in the U.S., the two biggest. And I make it a priority to go to those, to connect with people, to get our message out there because really experiential is still quite new. Uh, technically it's been around for a while, but I think the rise of social media and this influencer landscape has brought more attention to events. And so oftentimes what I'm doing is just educating people on the space. And then when they're ready to pull the trigger, I hope that they come to me, but there's still quite a lot of education to be done. It's not as simple as a lot of the other marketing disciplines that have been around for a while and, and people know quite a bit about, whether it's Facebook ad marketing or email marketing. Experiential is still very much in its early days, in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely getting bigger quite a lot, and but it could be, yeah, much better. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, democratizing it's really my... What I'm most excited about, it's I'd like to get the business to a place where we have a few big events a year that are kind of my sandbox where I get to test interesting ideas, technologies, and learn from that, but then have the core of the business be the online education piece. Uh, yeah, so I can empower cool. more brands to create better events because this business as I have it today doesn't scale and I don't necessarily want to build a big agency around what I'm doing now, but I do want there to be better events across the, <laughs> across the board for everyone. And uh, the only way to do that is to give people the tools and information and uh, even abilities to like network with each other. And that right now doesn't quite exist as I see it. Yeah, that's really fascinating because like a lot of people do find the huge scalable thing by doing something that doesn't scale first. So as in you're becoming a super expert on this whole process of experiential marketing to then work out how you can 
turn that into something that people can access sort of at scale exactly. more. So yeah, yeah, that's the goal. Cool. Okay, what do you think are like the biggest mistakes that people usually make when they're trying to run an experiential event? <laughs> um, well, I would say one is you can usually tell if it's all about the metrics, meaning sometimes brands focus on, they design for impressions and Instagram posts versus an actual like soul of the event, right? Like what is your brand story? What do you want people to take away from it? Sometimes that gets compromised for the, you know, flashy photo backdrops and the really cool gift booth and all of these things that we know people love because that just gets them to share. But if they come to your pop-up and take a few photos and post those on social and your brand is not even mentioned or what you're trying to communicate is not even captured in the comments or the captions, then that's actually not successful at all. Right. So I think when I work with brands, a lot of what I try and do is ask them, you know, let's not focus on the results. Let's focus on the motivation that will get us the results. So instead of asking, you know, are we like, how can we get people to share something? Mm -hmm. My question to them is, what can we create that will inspire them to share? Right. Like create something so good that they will want to share versus how do we make sure that they're sharing? Like it's, they're two very different mindsets. Um, and actually there's another, there's another doc on our website that covers this and that's, you know, these nine key questions to think about. And it's, it compares the traditional mindset of planning an event versus the experiential mindset. And it's very different, you know, like our a traditional event planner or event mindset, not planner, but mindset would be, you know, where should we have our event? Very simple question. Well, from an experiential point of view, the questions I would ask are, you know, what are three adjectives that describe our brand? Find three photos on Pinterest that reflect our brand as a room, right? Um, so like if our brand was a living room, what would it look like? What are the colors, the patterns, the textures? Like that's, that's the question you want to get to, not just, well, where could we have our event? Well, you could have it at a restaurant, you could have it at a coffee shop, right? So thinking more deeply about your brand as a, as a space, as an experience versus just running through logistics and saying, okay, like, how do we get them to share? Where should we have it? You know, what will the dates be? Those are important questions, but I challenge people to think about it on a deeper level. Or even a question like, what should guests do at an event, right? What are they going to do when they get there? Well, the next level question is actually, how do you want them to feel, right? How do you want your guests to feel at your event? If you want them to feel inspired, well, then maybe they should do something that, you know, is educational or inspirational, of course, right? If you want them to feel empowered, then maybe you should have an activity that makes them feel, you know, like they're in control. So maybe they're making something, they're creating something, right? So you often want to start with those experiential questions. And one of the mistakes I see is people start with the logistics. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's pretty fascinating. It's kind of funny. As an interviewer, it's sort of like, it's kind of hard working out what question to ask next. You never know what someone's going to say. And then it's like, based on like two lines of what I say, you might um, bottle like some crazy amounts of wisdom or you might not. And um, like, <laughs> right. it's, it's quite amazing that you come out with really cool stuff. Um, <laughs> nice one. Thanks. Is there anything that you're afraid of? Ooh, yes. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel anxious about this all the time. And it's something that I just am trying to grapple with. I mean, I think the there are definitely perks to being a business owner, especially in a space that, you know, you're really trying to evolve and be a front runner in. Uh, but there's also a lot of anxiety around not doing enough fast enough. Right. And uh, in particular, like my fear, like what I'm afraid of is like not reaching my potential and getting to a place where like, I just feel like I, you know, I'm stuck or I have to walk away and it's tough because, you know, I mean, there's ups and downs and one phone call, one email could make your day or make you feel like a total failure. And I think uh, I've been getting better and more resilient with that and with time, but I'm very afraid of, you know, not reaching the potential and, and not building what I am dreaming of fast enough and either having someone else beat me to it or just in particular, like not building something that I've envisioned I've wanted to build, right? Not reaching that actual potential. 
Yeah, I can really relate to that so much. So like I said, I wrote like the details for Uber and then two years later, Uber exists and I'm like, oh, fuck's sake, why am I not the person running Uber and, and these kind of things. And I definitely, I've, yeah, I completely relate to everything you just said, but have chilled out a lot more in the last sort of year or so of being like, there is a lot of time and maybe you aren't excellent at everything straight away and it's okay. You kind of, you're always learning and when you keep on trying, it's stuff happens. And, exactly yeah you, know, you don't need to like be on all the time and then okay so you're missing out on one thing but maybe you're gaining on other things so as in whilst I was at uni I was building a business the whole time and I did miss out on being a student and having fun with my friends and so as in you're kind of always balancing with something when you are pushing on one field so when you're kind of always optimizing your time to be as much as you possibly can on the business side, then maybe you're missing out on other parts of life and you're never going to be the age you are again and be able to appreciate what you're doing. So you don't need to be so anxious about losing on one thing because if you forget about the other things you're losing, kind of like what I said about listening to podcasts the whole time and you're anxious with this phone, like, oh shit, I've got to be listening to more ed education and developing myself and you're not like listening to the other things that are going on and trying to weigh up all the things are important when you kind of focused on one thing and it's sort of a bit of a head, head fuck for your brain. But absolutely worry so much is the moral of the story. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. And I think part of it is channeling it into things that are productive. And I will say like having a partner, like I just got married. I think I told you before the podcast and having someone who you know, we've only been together for a few years. And so I had been working on my past business before having this relationship. And it's been great because now I have boundaries and, you know, he comes home and we eat dinner and, and that's important, right? And normally I would work until 11 o'clock at night and, you know, sleep in and it just, my schedule is very different. And so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I look at that and I think of not, oh darn, I can't work 24 hours a day anymore, but there's a trade-off. And in fact, I'm a better business leader because of it. And I also have more balance. But uh, that being said, I think like any entrepreneur still kind of has that internal drive in their head that just, you know, wants to go faster. And I, I think recognizing that there will never be an end to that. Like Once you feel like you're going faster, you want to go even more yeah, fast. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just how it goes. But I think having that perspective is, is helpful. So, yeah. Cool. Oh, uh, that was really nice to talk about. Thanks. Okay. Is, um, I have two other questions that I normally ask people. Uh, one is, what is the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you? So I've had a lot of very kind people in my life. I would say the example that comes to mind most is when I was starting Confetti Kitchen, the food media company, and I was hosting pop-ups, I like I said before, I had no business hosting pop-ups. I had never done a pop-up dinner, you know, and we were seating 30 people for a night, you know, $75 a person, like really just doing something that I had never done before, but I needed a lot of help. And I had several friends who just pitched in their time and with nothing in return. I mean, they weren't trying to get an insider's view into the business or, you know, they were, they were just purely trying to support me. And I think having friends there who could show up and like help set the table and help make sure the pop-up was running smoothly and just truly just be there to support me, uh, was really kind. And it gave me what I needed to move forward because without those people, there's no way I would have, you know, I'd have to hire people and that would eat into whatever profit I had left over. And it just was such a kind gesture to show their support for me. And actions do speak louder than words and having them like show up and roll up their sleeves and help like lift chairs and move tables just meant a lot. And it's something that I am always grateful for. And I, I remember exactly who was there and what they did. And it, it meant a lot. Cool. That's nice. Yeah. Glad that now I have a staff, I have a team, yeah. so <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a little better, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's great when those friends show up for you, especially when there's nothing in it for them other than to just support you. But yeah, for anyone listening to the podcast who uh, has a friend that's trying to start a business and <laughs> you can help by just showing up and being nice to them. Exactly. Totally. So totally appreciated. Cool. Okay. And then what is one of your earliest memories? Ooh. 
Oh, this is so funny. So I, there are a few things, but I definitely was always wanting to start a business like as, as young as I can remember. And I think it was really clear when we, <laughs> so one of my neighbors, her and I are the same age uh, growing up and we, we would just play. So she'd come over or I'd come over to her place and we would play Barbies, dolls, whatever. And one day I told her that we were going to open a cafe in our garage. And she was like, wait, what? And I think she left my parents' garage in tears because I was so serious about it. And I was like, we need to have uniforms. And her name was Jamie. So it was CJ Cafe and we needed to have signage. And I kind of like took the lemonade stand to the next level. And like I said, I think she left crying, but, um, but I, I was just always like trying to hustle. I mean, my mom had a garden and I would try and sell potpourri that I would make from her rose petals. I would press flowers and make bookmarks and try and sell them. Like every 4th of July, you know, we had a cul-de-sac in our neighborhood and all the kids would be out playing. And I would like go shoot some basketball with my friends. And then I'd go back to my little table and try and sell these like homemade goods for next to nothing. And I just loved, I just loved the idea of like making my own money from something that I made. Right. And I think no one was telling me to do that. My parents are not, you know, typical like entrepreneurs, like they, you know, worked middle-class jobs. So I never, you know, and this is before Shark Tank, right? This is like early days where like, it was clearly just my internal desire being lived out in this glorified lemonade slash flower stand. And uh, I look back at that and I'm just like, yep, that's, that's who I am. Like, that's who I was. And uh, you know, it's, it's crazy how it shows up in many different uh, moments in your life after childhood. Right. Yeah, definitely. That's why I love asking the question. It's really funny to see where things that kind of happen in your life. That can, it's a good one. That's a really things. good, I might steal that for my podcast. Yeah. yeah it's really <laughs> nice. I mean, I'll be honest about, 40% of people just get like, crap, I can't remember anything, you know, they just say something really, like, some of them are just really weird things as well. <laughs> and it's just a bit bonkers. Um, but yeah, some of them are just really, really poignant. And or some of them have like crazy deep, like sort of horrible stuff that have influenced the rest of their life or like nice yeah. stuff that have influenced the rest of their life. And it's just quite fascinating and gives you a bit of insight that I know you just don't really hear anywhere else. So it's, it's like a nice question. Yeah, yeah you're welcome great. to use it on your podcast. I will. Nice. And um, thanks so much for coming on. Do you have any questions for me? Yes. Okay. So I want to know because I am all about dinner parties, getting people together. Uh, so if you could have a dinner party with three people, dead or alive, who would they be? <sighs> okay. Um, Dalai Lama, because he's such a legend. So nice. Uh, who is that? The Dalai Lama. You know, oh, Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. I've heard of him. <laughs> I love him. He's like my favorite Twitter account. He's always just posting such nice content. Um, he's cool. Um, I guess, oh, I think it would have to be Elon Musk, just because, I don't know, I've got lots of cool ideas and it would be nice to like talk to someone like that about, about them all. Although, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think I still go with Elon Musk anyway. I think I could learn lots and that would be nice. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it's like a debate. Do I want to go for like someone? Because when you meet people that are your heroes and like, you can kind of fluster and maybe it's just a bit awkward. And maybe I could just have one of my best mates already around for dinner because I'll have a really nice time with them. So it's, it's like a confusing one, really, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's good. It's good. They don't all have to get along, but I'm sure having a friend would be helpful and kind of managing the Dalai Lama and Elon Musk. So this is like they just teleport in, or because yeah, like yeah, the best friend like in Australia kind of thing, and it's quite a faff for me to go out and visit them or for them to come to me. So if they can just happen to turn up at my dinner party, like yep, that's out, it. Then it's like perfect. So yeah, I guess I'd probably invite like Felix from Australia because he was appeared on the podcast a few times. So it was really interesting, and it'd be nice to sort of have him around again. Nice. Looks like a good, good table. Yeah, pretty, pretty random, but um, lots of fun thoughts. Great. Cool, Great. I'm excited. Okay. Um, and yeah, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. It was really great chatting with you. My pleasure. 
Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, maybe you need some better help. And conveniently, BetterHelp quite literally exists in the form of an app called BetterHelp. So, counselling from a licensed therapist is just a really good idea. I can't tell you how helpful it is to unpack your problems confidentially with another human instead of bouncing around your own mind, often making things worse for yourself. So I'm delighted to be both using and promoting BetterHelp, the app. Basically, it's an online counselling app where you get matched with a qualified therapist of your choice. They have over 3,000 licensed therapists and you can specify your requirements to get a therapist perfect for you and your problems. So whether you're depressed, angry, anxious, suffering from trauma, if you only feel comfortable with like a gay, black therapist, then you can put that in your preferences and that was what you will get. So you can talk over text, chat, phone or video at times that suit you and get started in under 24 hours. It's available on most normal electronic devices where you can schedule in calls uh, weekly pretty much and financial aid may also be available to those who qualify so it's really worth investigating but if not you do still get a good deal with 10% off using the code growth mindset so why not get started today go to betterhelp.com slash growth mindset simply fill out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love within 24 hours that's betterhelp.com slash growth mindset. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast. <laughs>